The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, and welcome to our national conversation about conversations about race, the weekly podcast where we discuss the ways we can't talk, don't talk, would rather not talk, but intermittently, fitfully, embarrassingly do talk about culture, identity, politics, power, and privilege in our pre-post-yet-still-very-racial America. You could say all that or just call this show About Race. I'm Anna Holmes, and joining me from the Panoply Studios in New York are two very bad hombres. About Race regular Tanner Colby. Hi, Tanner. Hello, Anna. And Ari Berman, hombre number two, contributing writer for The Nation magazine and an investigative journalism fellow at The Nation Institute. Welcome to the show, Ari. Good to see you, Anna. Let's talk about the debate. What do you think? (sighs) I'm glad it's over. I'm glad it's all over. Pertaining to the topic we're, we're going to get to today, it was rather disheartening. Well, A, people of color have already kind of had their presidential election. It was called the Democratic primary. And now <laughs> we're having the general election where we have a white nationalist party against everyone else. Mm-hmm. Everyone's competing for these, you know, the college-educated Republicans, the independent white women, and votes of people of color are sort of like taken for granted at this point. So nobody's really talking about it. The importance of the Supreme Court was the leadoff question. And I'm sitting here reading Ari's book about the importance of the Voting Rights Act and everything that's been happening recently. And it's like, and Hillary doesn't even bring it up, which was disheartening. Yeah, she she talked a little bit about the Supreme Court in the second debate, I think it was, or the first debate. They're all kind of blending together. <laughs> and she did talk about the right to vote. But for some reason, it wasn't part of the things that she cared about with the Supreme Court, which I, I thought was a missed opportunity. I mean, it was weird. The, the, the first debate was really entertaining. The second debate was really horrifying. Mm-hmm. And I think no one knew what the third debate would be like. And I think it was a little bit more like the first debate. I thought Clinton did a good job. I, mean, I thought some of her answers on things like abortion mm-hmm. were very good. Yeah, she was very And very, very straightforward. Yes. And Trump just kind of kept losing it more and more and more. And I was hoping that Chris Wallace would bring up the rigged election question. When he did, I mean, Trump just immediately fell for it. Yeah. I mean, saying that he wouldn't accept the election results was immediately going to be a disqualifying answer. And the headline for days to, to come. Yeah, so, so the Trump campaign had to have talked about this before to the extent that there is a Trump campaign, right? I mean, <laughs> so it's always one of the mistaken assumptions of this campaign is that <laughs> right. there is a Trump campaign. <laughs> and I don't know if like Kellyanne Conway told Donald Trump, like, maybe you should act like every other presidential nominee in history and accept the results. But like Steve Bannon was egging him on yet again to go full Breitbart. Because I don't really think Trump is running for president anymore. I, I don't think you bring Sarah Palin to be your guest at debate. I don't think you bring... Was he ever running for president then? I I think he was running for president for a period of time and he thought he could win. I mean, he was tied in the polls for a brief period of time. But I think now he's kind of... He's not running for president. He's running for whatever his next move is. Mm -hmm. And I think all all his advisors, particularly Bannon from Breitbart, are trying to position him as this epicenter of the alt-right as opposed to someone who can legitimately be... President. But what 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 would that next move even be? I mean, I'm not really buying that he could successfully launch a a media entity as some have posited. I'm not sure that would actually work. I'm not sure that he has the fortitude or the competence to do that. I'm not sure that he has the competence to hire the people who would be able to do that. So, yeah, I'm just not sure what what he's running for. And also, you know, he did make a comment last night <laughs> where he basically said outright that he was going to win the election. And you have to wonder whether he really 
believes that or not. Like, is that just bluster? I guess the question is, how crazy is he? (laughs) I I feel like his whole life has been moving from one thing to another, real estate to casinos, and every every single one of them collapses under the weight of his narcissistic personality disorder because yep. he blows whatever potential and, he, and money he has. He chokes. He chokes. As Hillary said. He chokes. He did not Hillary like said. that. And you can't declare bankruptcy when you're running for president. Right. I mean, you either win or you don't. Yeah. And then he moves on to the next thing. And yeah. the question is, what can he move on to from here? And it strikes me, and we'll be interested to see in like two or three years, I immediately thought of the O.J. Simpson documentary where after he becomes a pariah, more or less, he just ends up down in Miami hanging out with anyone who will pay attention to him and glorify him as the juice and everything else. And it's just the most worst kind of bottom feeding life. I see Trump there in in five years. His hotels are are declining. His brand is destroyed. Mm -hmm. He's some kind of civil charges are going to come out of all this Trump university foundation thing, something fines or something who knows it's also the foundation yeah yeah like where is he in five years when does melania cut bait and take the prenup and go <laughs> baron um <laughs> poor baron and and so like he's just going to end up playing this carnival barker to an increasingly more fringe like this is it for him this is the the apex yeah and it's he, in 10 years or the nader but but yeah. I, I think that bannon and some of the trump advisors are still i i think bannon's trying to create this media company and i think he's trying to you basically using trump to mm-hmm. try to get there and because mm-hmm. i mean how else do you invite sarah palin and james O'Keefe as your guests to the, I mean, this is so right, I outlandish. Know, I, know. I mean, it's it's like it's a stereotype of a stereotype at right. this point, and mm-hmm. the storylines have gone beyond like Veep territory. Mm-hmm. I mean, they couldn't even have written this if they tried. The only way it makes sense is if you think that it's not about becoming president anymore because that ship has sailed. I want to go back to some of the substance, if one can call it that, of the debate. I think Hillary did fine, but I didn't think she did great. I had a couple friends and colleagues who. It felt very differently. They felt that she did really, really well. I, I, I didn't. I think it's because I, number one, the fact that she's even on the stage with him like, debases not just her, but democracy in such a way that that it, it's just hard. It's, it's hard to get the stink off just the event itself. But more specifically, when he took her to task about emails and, and WikiLeaks and she tried to pivot or rather, no, I'm sorry. He was talking about immigration and she tried to pivot to, to issues about WikiLeaks and Russian espionage. I didn't think she did a very good job with that pivot. And that's actually the word he used. And he was he was right in kind of mocking her for that. As much as it pains me to say that, I was kind of groaning throughout that. And I don't think I ever Hot recovered. Take, <laughs> I don't think I ever, yeah. Uh, but Anna then he got off in the, uh, no, you're the puppet. No, you right. are. No, yeah, you yeah, are. Yeah, and yeah. and no, he no, hung sure. himself. Sure. No, no, no. He didn't do well. I'm not saying that she that she did badly, but I, right. I had a hard time personally recovering from that. I thought that was a, a weak moment. I also just think that she's maybe not as good as at improvising as I would like her to be. I think I think right. I want here's the thing. I think I want her to crush him like a bug in each of these debates and she hasn't. I think she's won each one. I think she's done quite admirably. I'm not I couldn't do any better, <laughs> believe right. me. But my desire, whether secret or not, is to really see her ruin him and bring him low. And that hasn't happened. Yeah, so that might be I, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna yeah. jump in here. Okay. With <laughs> you really want her improvising though, like because when she, you go to the extreme of improvising, you get a Donald Trump performance. Like there were so many people tweeting out about like I didn't say that she yeah, she shouldn't be going yeah, to the yeah. extreme, but I do think that some of her <laughs> answers sound canned and rehearsed in a way that like it it, it, it I mean she she ensured an entire news cycle that was completely negative for him. I mean right. she didn't do it, but yeah. sometimes you just kinda have to get out of the way. Yeah, and she just she she she's gonna let him hang himself, yeah. which is the obviously the strategy, but there are times it's like say 
there's like a big, fat, slow pitch coming <laughs> right across the plate, and mm-hmm. you're like, that's a home run, and she hits a double. Yeah. And you're like, God yeah. damn it. Yeah. You know, yeah, though, yeah, this, but I mean, it's like impo- stiffness. But, but a double's a good hit. Yeah. about her has followed her her whole career, and like, I think she's done a way better job of cutting loose about it. I, I think her, de- I think her, the debates, the second debate, she was a little bit rattled, and I think it was obvious mm. why anyone would have well, been rattled. He was stalking her. <laughs> well, he was stalking her. He brought Bill's women, all right, this stuff. Right. But I, I mean, I think that the debates have been among her strongest moments yeah. in the campaign, and I think it shows, you know, why she's here. But I think it's also to rem- important to remember that if she was running against John Kasich or Marco Rubio, she would probably be losing right now. Mm-hmm. So I mean, she is a, she is also a very flawed candidate, mm-hmm. and she has to answer to all of these things, like the foundation, the emails, et cetera, et cetera, the FBI, uh, that in the normal course of a presidential race uh, would be extremely harmful, Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. just haven't harmed her as much because of Trump. I was thinking about this on the train this morning, wondering why it is that Hillary and her team seems to make so many own goals repeatedly, even after all these years. Now, whether or not you think they should be blown up into big scandals, I would suggest that no, they shouldn't. But like, but even just giving the ammunition, creating situations that, that give her detractors ammunition. And yet I don't think, you know, that the Obama administration has done that at all in, in any respect. So why is that? Why are they so why are they so in control? And her team seems to be so blind to the to the situations that, that she puts herself in or, or gets put in that are going to come back to bite her in the ass. Well, first thing, I mean, with the Obamas, you have one politician Barack, and then you have you know Michelle, and everything they do is basically above board. And here you had Bill Clinton starting out, where everything was a mess mm-hmm. in Arkansas. I mean, mm-hmm. he was just a sloppy guy, mm-hmm. you know, in everything, in his personal life, mm-hmm. in his political dealings. Incredibly talented, but incredibly undisciplined. Yeah. And then, and then you have all of that experience, and then Hillary is distasteful of the press, which feeds her secrecy. Then the f- secrecy creates problems, which then feeds more distrust of the press. It's like a vicious cycle. Like, where do you start? Did it start with the secrecy? Did it start with distrust? But whatever it is, I feel like if she was just open about things and above board, it would work out. But instead, they try to take all these shortcuts, which in the end, uh, just make everything worse. Well, I think if you go back to, you know, there's a lot of stuff written about Clinton's first campaign where she hadn't changed her name yet. She hadn't changed her look. She was still, you know, the sort of radical from Yale and Wellesley in Arkansas. And people said, well, that cost Bill the election because people didn't like you. And from that point on, she was like, all right, well, I can't be myself. So who am I going to be? And it just turns into the cycle of constantly deflecting critics and pivoting and pivoting and, and, and shading and shading. And, you know, and then also, like you say, to the point of the messiness in, in Arkansas, with all of Bill's affairs and the bimbo eruption, everything else, though, like <laughs> lying just becomes second nature when, when you're in something like that. It's like living with an alcoholic where everyone's in all about the alcoholism. You just you elide the truth and it just becomes a part of who you are. You, you talk around things. You keep things under wraps, not because you're a bad person, but, but just that's the situation you're in. And I think that's just has become second nature. Well, I, I would I would like to think that perhaps after the the election of Hillary Clinton to the presidency of the United States that she might relax a little bit um, on, on that point, but I'm not sure it's going to happen. But I want to go to our main segment, which is adjacent to some of the issues brought up in last night's debate. So Ari, we're really excited to have you here because you've been doing a bunch of reporting during this election cycle and others. And you have a book about voting rights that came out, what, two years ago? Three? August of 2015. Okay. One year ago. I want to talk about voting rights. But Tanner, you want to take the point on this one? Yes, I will, since you have been in the woods 
literally uh, recreating. So Ari's book is the fantastic and and really compelling. Give us the ballot: the modern struggle for voting rights in America. So with uh, Trump talking about you know rigging elections, we thought we'd have you in to talk about the actual rigging of elections that goes on in this country. That being the fifty year attempt to undermine, invalidate, and rescind the Voting Rights Act, which was undeniably probably the single biggest legislative achievement of the nineteen sixty civil rights movement. Uh, before it, uh, blacks were routinely denied the ballot. Uh, and denied the right to vote in many, many ways, both legislative and, you know, threats of state-sponsored violence. And then after that act passed, the number of black registered voters in the South increased to 73%. Because there is so much history here. I'm going to let you sort of give our readers, uh, I always say readers. I do too. Give our listeners some historical context. So just a brief summary of the kinds of legal assault that were launched against the Voting Rights Amendment Act. Sorry why Section 5 was so important halting them, and what happened to those protections in the backlash to Obama's election and the Shelby v. Holder decision. Okay. I'll, I'll try not to take mm-hmm. 45 minutes answering it, it's that. It's very first, long, but... It's okay. You know, that first question. I mean, so you got to set up the situation before the Voting Rights Act, right? Only about a third of African Americans were registered in the South before 1965. And the numbers were much, much lower in certain places. Like only 6.7% of African Americans were registered in Mississippi. And only 2% of African Americans were were registered in places like Selma, Alabama. And it wasn't like the federal government wasn't trying. Before the Voting Rights Act, they were filing lawsuits. They were sending people down there. They were trying to get people registered and just nobody was registered because a segregation was so iron clad in because states like Alabama had things like literacy tests and poll taxes. And even if you were, after many, many years of litigation, able to throw those things out, then Alabama would just think of a different kind of literacy test or a different kind of poll tax that then would take five years to challenge in court. So the first question they were trying to think of is, how do we knock down these tests so we can actually get people registered? So mm-hmm. uh, that's the main purpose of the Voting Rights Act was to do that. Once we knock down these literacy tests, how do we actually get people registered? Like, How do we actually make it happen. It's not like states like Alabama are suddenly just going to comply with the law. So, I mean, this was kind of amazing. I mean, they sent federal officials to the South to register voters in the most segregated and dangerous areas within days after the law passed. So, and then they thought over a longer period of time, how will states comply? And that's why they decided that those states with the longest history of discrimination had to approve their voting changes with the federal government. And that made both the Voting Rights Act very, very effective. It also meant that it was going to be very controversial because the idea that these states for a long period of time would have to approve their voting changes with the federal government was going to breed resentment and that states were going to try to figure out more creative ways to try to get out from under the law. So on the one hand, you have the, the fact that it was super powerful. Uh, and did exactly uh, what it said it would. But at the same time, I think when Lyndon Johnson introduced the Voting Rights Act in 1965, he hoped that it would end the debate over voting rights once and for all. And clearly that didn't no, happen. No. Uh, the, the the things that, that these Republican and Southern state legislators, it was like my two-year-old trying to get out of going to bed. It's like, now I'm going to try this. Now I'm going to try this. Now, and <laughs> yeah, we're in that phase right now. <laughs> literally, no, it's literally hundreds of challenges that, that the voting rights movement has to shut down every year. And all through the 70s and 80s, thanks to the bipartisan consensus in Congress, it gets reauthorized and passed until Obama is elected. So where are we now? So I think a, f- a few different trends 
converged. The mm-hmm. first was that there was a very dedicated movement in conservative circles to get people on the bench who would oppose things like the Voting Rights Act. The Nixon administration, then the Reagan administration, then the first Bush administration, then the second Bush administration pushed the courts very far to the right. So even when Barack Obama is able to make two Supreme Court appointments, he's still dealing with the Roberts mm-hmm. Court. The other thing that happened in addition to conservatives taking control of the court is that in 2008, it wasn't just the first black president elected, but 5 million new people voted. Mm-hmm. If you look at those 5 million new voters, it's really fascinating. 2 million are African-American, 2 million are Latino, and 600,000 are Asian-American. So virtually all the new voters in 2008 are people of color. And they vote 75% for President Obama. And that set off alarm bells throughout the GOP. They said, if this becomes the new normal, we are screwed. Mm-hmm. If there is high turnout among young people and people of color, and they vote for Democratic candidates, we will not win going forward. And not only that, but states that were not in play, like Texas, they start to become competitive. So they said, how can we tamp this down? They reached back to a much older strategy in American history, which is you try to make it harder for people that disagree with you to participate in the first place. Mm -hmm. And the idea is voter ID, uh, making it harder to register to vote, cutting back on the amount of time that people have to vote. All of those things really become an incentive for the Republican Party after 2008 to try to weaken the Obama coalition. And they finally succeed with Shelby V. Holder. Yeah. And so you have both this movement in the states to make it harder to vote when all of these state legislatures that are controlled by Republicans are introducing new voting restrictions. At the same time, legislation is being fast-tracked in the courts to challenge the Voting Rights Act. And they're, and they're going in tandem, right? Because you have some of these very restrictions like Texas's voter ID law, where you can vote with a gun permit, but not a student ID. Those kind of things are blocked under the Voting Rights Act. And that makes states like Texas very angry. You also have the fact that you have not just the first black president, but the first black attorney general mm-hmm. who's mm-hmm. enforcing the Voting Rights Act. So the racial politics become even more complicated there because you hear the Obama holder Justice Department, which always to me was yeah. a racial statement. Yeah. And so all of those things made a piece of legislation that, as you mentioned, had lots of bipartisan support for a long time, become this thing that was basically being used to help black Democrats at the expense of the Republican Party. So then after Shelby V. Holder and Roberts and his majority say, all right, well, things are egalitarian now. We're done with this. It served its purpose. We then have a flood of voter restrictions that are coming all over the country. Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, North Carolina, everywhere, like literally 30 seconds after the decision comes down, everybody has their Alex sponsored bill and they all go to the wall with it. So what do you see? What what do you see is going to happen on November 8th? Based on what you've been been reporting. So it's important to remember some of these efforts were underway before the Supreme Court gutted the Voting Rights Act, because mm-hmm. a, a lot of these things originated after the 2010 election. But it, it was like they were injected with steroids after the voter suppression monster. The right. head grew, they got strong <laughs> biceps, you know, it was like Barry Bonds. He was a good hitter before steroids, but he wasn't the home run king. And so that's really what happened. And, and then you saw you know, laws that were blocked in places like Texas were allowed to be put into effect. And then states passed more sweeping voting restrictions like in North Carolina, where they didn't just do voter ID, but they cut early voting and they eliminated same-day voter registration. They eliminated pre-registration for 16 and 17-year-olds. All these reforms that state had were eliminated. And the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals said that that law targeted black voters with almost surgical precision. And it's really amazing to read this opinion that the Fourth Circuit put out 
sometime in in the summer of 2016, because it's such a striking rebuke to John Roberts. Here you have the chief justice basically saying racial discrimination in voting is a thing of the past. The Voting Rights Act is no longer necessary. Mm -hmm. And then you have the Fourth Circuit in North Carolina basically saying you took all of the methods that increased black turnout and you targeted them in the words of the court with almost surgical precision. You cut early voting because 70% of African-Americans used it compared to 51% of whites. Everything you did was racially motivated. And you Mm -hmm. might claim it's because of partisanship, but all of it had to do with race. So 14 states have new voting restrictions in place for the first presidential cycle in 2016. And I think instead of making it easier to vote, which there's lots of different things we could do to make it easier to vote, we're instead making it harder to vote in a country that ranked 31st out of 34 advanced democracies when it comes to voter turnout. So I want to know, what are the things that can make it easier to vote? Number one. Number two, this isn't even necessarily related. But what do you worry about come November 8th? I'm assuming you don't worry that Donald Trump is going to win the presidency. He's probably not going to. But what are you worried about with regards to voting rights, voting patterns? Yeah. So, I mean, I've already been in states where voting is underway, like in Wisconsin, and people are being denied voter ID. So I'm concerned about some of the stuff that I already know about. Mm -hmm. I'm also concerned about some of the stuff that I don't know about, like what Donald Rumsfeld said, right? The known knowns and the the, unknown. Yeah. Like in... During the Democratic primary, there were five-hour lines in Maricopa County in Phoenix because they closed 70% of polling places there. Nobody knew they closed 70% of polling places until they showed up on election Mm -hmm. day in the primary. And suddenly, there were all these lines and everyone said, where are all the polling places? And they said, oh, by the way, we eliminated 70% of them. So that's what I'm concerned about. And then you add, you know, Donald Trump's call for poll vigilantes on top of that. I don't think that's going to happen in the numbers that people are claiming because the Trump campaign is not organized (laughs) enough to do it. And not only that, there is a legal order. are his supporters organized enough to do that? Yeah, possibly. I, also, I think you get random guys going down trying yeah. to cause trouble, but there's not going to be any. But know. but at the same time, I hope you're right. It's only yeah. only one act of violence right. could blow this whole thing up. Yeah. Right. You know, in right. in the age of social media and mm-hmm. everything like that, mm-hmm. you know, one Trump supporter in Atlanta going and shooting up a polling place. I'm not saying it's going to happen. I hope to right. God it doesn't Philly. happen. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's you know, I would like to see what happened if some of Trump's poll watchers went to quote inner city Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. Like, right. I'd like to <laughs> yeah. see them try. Yeah. Yeah. I'd really yeah, like to ahead. see someone from, drive from Scranton sure. down there and, and see yeah. how it would go down. I think it's a lot of bluster, but at the same time, I mean, it's possible. We don't know. This is going to be a very combustible election. There's a lot of things right. we don't know. Right. So the other half of the equation is the, I think, far dicier and trickier one because it's pretty obvious that these Republican efforts to disenfranchise people are unjust. So- you know, Abigail Thornstrom and John Robertson and all of these conservative critics that when the Voting Rights Act went from simply ensuring access to trying to affect representation, they called it affirmative action. They called it a quota system. And one thing that that baffles me about Republicans and, and race is that they're wrong even when they have a kernel of being right. So I, I can see where their argument starts from a point of view of, of like, okay, they're identifying a problem and they go like completely sideways with it. And to me, from everything I've looked at, so anyways, the problem with quotas, they always present quotas as if they're unconstitutional, or they're unfair to white people or all those other things. But that's not the problem with quotas. The problem with quotas is that not that they're unfair to white people, but they're a ceiling for black people. And so like in a mobile, when you say, all right, no black person can get elected in an at-large election. So we need to divide it up and say, all right, black people get three districts. They get three seats for that side of town. Well, then that's great. It's three more seats than they had before, but then that's all you get. 
and you see this all all over the place in advertising, which I wrote about in my book. Black advertising agencies tried for years to get part of like the Pepsi account, and they couldn't even get a meeting. So then affirmative action came along and said, these black agencies get 10% of the Pepsi account. And that's great. It's tens of millions of dollars. But then that's all you ever get. You'll never get the Pepsi account. And for years, you know, ever since the Voting Rights Act came along, we've had this boon of black representation, but we've have virtually no statewide representation. Yeah. Very few black governors or Hispanic or senators. And that seems to be the limitation the upper ceiling of these majority minority districts is that you get a lot of John Lewis's and Maxine Waters and Kwame Kilpatrick's. You have very few Deval Patrick's, only one Obama. So how do we transcend that ceiling moving forward? What kind of and what's interesting is I was, I was reading all about this. Obama kind of gerrymandered himself into a wider, wealthier, more Republican district <laughs> to get the base he needed to run a national election. So, I mean, first off, the the arguments that John Roberts were, was making saying the Voting Rights Act was going to lead to proportional representation was so absurd right. because there was such an underrepresentation. I mean, you had a situation in the South where in the 1980s, when Roberts is claiming that the Voting Rights Act is going to lead to proportional representation, that African-Americans are five percent of elected officials, but 25% of the population. So the question should have been, how can we increase representation, not arguing that a dramatic underrepresentation was somehow becoming proportional representation. So the problem is the federal government can't force white people to vote for black people. All they could do is say, we want to draw the district so the people that want to vote for a black candidate are able to. Would people like John Lewis, if they were in different districts, have a broader base of support, maybe be able to run for statewide office? Possibly. Or there might just not be a John Lewis. I think that's the more likely scenario, that if they didn't have these opportunities to run in these districts, they just wouldn't get elected at all, still in many cases. And the things that you're talking about, the underrepresentation of people of color, they're not just problems in voting, right? Mm -hmm. They're problems in every sure. in every part of sure. society. How much do you see the changing demographics of the U.S. maybe canceling out some of the efforts of, of Republicans in particular to restrict voting rights or access? And, and, and if that's going to happen, when is that going to start happening in earnest? Yeah, I think it's happening. And I think that voter suppression is a short-term strategy, but I think it could be an effective short-term strategy. So you look at Texas. Texas doesn't just have a, a voter ID law, but they have some of the worst voter registration laws in the country. It's one of the hardest states to register voters. I just wrote about this uh, for the nation, that if you want to do a voter registration drive in Texas, you have to be deputized by the state. And you can only register voters in the county in which you're deputized from people who live in that county. So you have to be deputized in San Antonio. You can only register people in San Antonio. You can't register anyone in Dallas or Austin. or So it's basically impossible to do a statewide voter registration campaign, especially in a place like Texas that has 254 counties. So the net effect of that is Texas has 3 million unregistered voters of color, 2 million unregistered Latinos, 750,000 unregistered African Americans. If they were registered, not even voting, if they were just registered, mm -hmm. Texas would be a purple state where people would invest resources. Mm -hmm. But they can't get registered because it's so difficult to register voters and no one, no one wants to put the money in to do it. So here you're in a situation where eventually people will be registered in large numbers in Texas, but it might take 10, 20 years longer than it should. Mm -hmm. Like right now, if you look at the demographics of Texas, it should be a swing state. But on local races, it's not a swing state. Couldn't money be spent on messaging, on advertising to prompt or encourage unregistered voters to become 
registered voters. So Texas has no online registration. So okay. if you want to yeah. register to vote, you, you either have to, to you either have to go to the DMV yeah. where they're in total non-compliance, where they're not giving a lot of people the option to register, or you can give someone a form to mail, but they have to mail it. Right. So you can't really keep track of the process. Mm-hmm. Or you can become what what I wrote about, which is called a volunteer deputy registrar. And that's the the most secure the most way to effect, do it. Effective the, way. The problem is not just you have to be deputized. The training could take place once a month or less to become deputized. You have to hand in all your forms within five days. Your expiration, your deputization, only lasts until even numbered years. So if you're deputized in 2016, I just was with someone who was deputized in September of 2016. He will have to get deputized all over again in 2017 if he wants to register people in city council races. So you have to do this, this every like, two years. It sounds like Monty Python and the Holy Grail, where yes, you must seriously. cut down the tallest tree in the forest with a herring. You would, you know, go and do this impossible it's thing. It's completely insane. I called it uh, Texas's Jim Crow voter registration laws. And the reason why I use the Jim Crow analogy in particular was that Texas doesn't allow people who aren't from Texas to register voters. Mm-hmm. So if you remember Mississippi Freedom Summer, mm-hmm. when all of these college students came from out of state to Mississippi to try to register voters. That would be illegal in Texas today. Wow. That's how That's, crazy their laws are. So it's worse than Mississippi. Texas, wow. Some of Texas's laws right now are worse than what Mississippi had on the books in the 1960s. My God. Wow. Tanner, um, Tanner has to go, but he has to, but, well, before that, we have to do our recommendations. Well, you then you can your... leave. Well, you got four minutes. You said 545. It's 541. Okay, it's a I big have... clock behind you. Okay. What, what do I have to recommend? I read this great book this week. Uh-huh. Ari's book. It's called Give Us the Ballot, The okay. Modern Struggle for Voting Rights in America. Uh-huh. Um, it makes all this legalistic Supreme Court cases and lawyers very vivid and dramatic, and you find a lot of the personalities behind it, which is great. Yeah, but that's what I've been reading, so that's what everyone should read, okay. especially in light of the election that we're in. Uh, so, Ari, this is the part of the show where we make recommendations with regards to things that we're, we've been reading or watching or listening to lately that you think listeners should check out. So what would your recommendation or recommendations be. So I should just point out that I'm really struggling with reading at the moment. <laughs> what, because Not, you have a two-year-old? Yeah, okay. Because between covering an election, yeah, uh, there's that. promoting a book still, and being having a two-year-old, I'm basically like falling asleep reading the sports section of the New York Times on my <laughs> iPad. So my my reading is not, and I'm trying to read fiction, but it's it's not really happening. Uh-huh. I'm watching a lot of good TV though. Yeah. So what? Okay, what so TV? You're watching uh, good TV. Been watching the new season of Transparent. Uh-huh. Do you watch that show? Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. it's good. Yeah, it is. BoJack Horseman. I haven't watched that so, yet, but I know everyone says it's great. I gotta watch. There's so, so funny. Much to watch. Atlanta. Uh huh. Yep. I Very was talking good. about that the other week. The Night Manager. I was watching. What, hey, what is that about? Because I I've been hearing about it, but I don't know what it's about. It's Hugh Laurie and John Le Carre. Okay. Uh-huh. It's kind of like James Bond, but more soapy. Okay. But it's good. He's like an arms dealer, and Tom Hiddleston is like this guy who infiltrates his operation. What era is it set in? It's cur- present day but it takes place in like monaco and all these like fancy european places. and it's a television series it's not a mini series it's, it's a like, mini series it is a mini series okay. yeah my, my wife watched it a while ago and then i was on a plane that like had a randomly good tv like, <laughs> really you know like sometimes you're on <laughs> oh, like yeah. a plane and there's like six movies like sure this one somehow like a some like delta flight had, like a huge library and i was like the night manager yeah. so I made it through three. What have you been watching and reading? Well, nothing because I was I was <laughs> <laughs> was briefly on vacation. I was in Yosemite um, National Park, which is uh, about four hours from where I grew up, but I hadn't been there since I believe two thousand six, and before that, I hadn't been there since maybe nineteen eighty three or eighty four. Uh, I went there with my parents and my sister. 
I wish we had more time there on, on the one hand. On the other hand, it's a very crowded national park. So I would suggest people go, but like, don't expect that you're going to have a lot of alone time or quiet. So th- my recommendation is visit your national park, whether that's Yosemite or some somewhere closer. In fact, you know, the National Park Service doesn't just the administrator for national parks. They're the administrator for many other federal locations that are under the NPS system that all of us can visit, including much of New York City, the Statue of Liberty, Ellis Island, Grant's Tomb, all NPS locations. Um, I think uh, the next national park I want to go to is Grand Teton. About race listeners, we wouldn't even be here without you. So if you love what we do, or even if you don't, would you mind telling a few friends to subscribe? You can do this on Facebook, on Twitter, in person, so long as you grab your friend's phone and subscribe them before they can stop you. Uh, If you can think of someone in your life who wants to or needs to understand race better, get them listening. Let's expand the conversation. We will all be better for it. That's all for today. Our producer is AC Valdez. Our research assistant and tech maven is Cody Carvel. Thanks, as always, to Laura Mayer and Andy Bowers at Panoply. You can see its entire roster of captivating, compulsively listenable podcasts at iTunes.com backslash Panoply. You can find links to the things we've discussed today on our website, showaboutrace.com. You can also follow along with the conversation or join it yourself on Facebook or Twitter at showaboutrace. Or you can email us directly at showaboutrace at gmail.com. We are now accepting, always accepting voice memos. In the meantime, thank you so much for joining our national conversation about conversations about race. On behalf of Tanner Colby and Ari Berman, I'm Anna Holmes.